0: Hello everyone, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Khushmata Zabai, and at BTT, I am the Director of Research and I am also managing the monthly thematic research groups. And I am super excited to be welcoming you all to the Women's Month Research Group's podcast discussion series. Um, What we hope to do with the podcast is dive into some of the issues, identities and concepts associated with gender and women in general as well. For today, I'm super excited to be handing over the management and the curation of today's discussion to Noor Suwan. And alongside Noor in the discussion, we have Sabrina and Jinhao, two research fellows, and of course, my lovely assistant, David. It's all up to you guys. So let's see what we can
1: do tonight. Okay. So um, I'm going to be talking about the politicization of women's choices. Um, Now, obviously, I'm going to be starting from a Middle Eastern context because, you know, that's what I'm mostly interested in. So in a Middle Eastern context, the first thing that comes into mind when I say the word politicization of women's choices is obviously the hijab or the scarf or the veil, whatever you want to call it. Why? Because it's so obvious that that's a very interesting starting point. So I'm going to start with a little bit of a story. Um, In pre-modern societies, there existed this association between female hair and sexuality. So they were kind of connected in a lot of pre-modern societies. It's not just the Middle East, but we can see that recorded across different societies. Um, Now, the argument at that time was that it's biologically attractive, so in order to kind of maintain the purity of a society or, you know, whichever moral uh, guidelines a certain society would have, they kind of um, endorsed that women should be hiding that hair, that was the idea. so in, it, it existed in many forms. You know, you have different societies hiding their hair in a lot of different forms. Now, in the literature, there doesn't seem like anyone contested that. It always seemed to be a very organic and very well accepted idea. Um, now, some generations later, the veil itself came to be equated with womanhood, attractiveness, femininity. For example, an unveiled girl was just a kid, but a veiled girl was suddenly seen as a a woman and possibly an attractive woman. Now, the idea would be something along the lines of if she's covering up, then there's probably something worth covering up with. So I know that's very alien to us today, but at that time, in prehistoric times, there was this kind of association. Um, Now... A couple of generations later, the trend of the times also changed. Now, there seem to be more associations with partial concealment. So the partial concealment or the partially concealed hair, like, you know, some of the Turkish women still do that, some women from uh, Greece still do that. That was ultimately seen as the ultimate symbol of femininity to a certain extent. Now the idea with that was very interesting because you get to claim moral superiority at the same time you can also claim the you know you can compete on the biological attractiveness argument as well so that's a very odd one out kind of argument um, now it's a little bit of a performative act of conformity at that time um, while still pushing the boundaries to a certain extent now in an iranian context which i'm going to be focusing on right now is that the veil started to make some additional association one of them includes the veil as a rank indicator which is really interesting now the veil was internalized as the proper thing to do in societies. This is, we're still in pre-modern times. So it started to be associated with education, knowledge, and ultimately class. So in fact, the veil itself became such a, an accurate indicator of class that they, that society, the Iranian society prehistorically, kind of deemed it as as worth protecting as an accurate indication of class, so much so that it carried the weight of the law behind it. So for example, there was legislation that was introduced to disallow women from lower social and economic status to wear the veil. So now it would only be upper class women who can wear the veil. Now, this was the status quo in Iran until the Pahlavi dynasty in 1925. The first Pahlavi um, Shah, um, Reza Shah. So he did something pretty interesting. Now, under him, Iran, this is, you know, when Iran is a modern state. So under him, commercial flights began. The destination started to span Cairo, Baghdad, and eventually Europe. Now, the majority of Iranians traveling at that time were obviously men these men were starting to develop the very weird fascination and the fascination was something along the lines of european models not women european models so it was the first time these iranian men were exposed to women who were not concealed um so there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that there was any kind of intellectual provocation or any kind of real diffusion of European values. It literally just seemed to be a, a crush, basically. So with that, the businessman wanted to manufacture a new association with the veil. Now the new association that they want to come bring back to Iran is that of backwardness. This was picked up and endorsed by no other than the Shah himself the shah at that time was trying to modernize iran itself just like turkey was doing uh, what ataturk was was doing at that time um there doesn't seem to be a lot of dispute that he was trying to modernize iran even if be it by force so on january 7 1936 the shah announced a national unveiling day that he called the kashf e hijab this was supposed to be celebrated as a national victory of modernization over tradition and backwardness. Even the police at that time was mobilized to maintain conformity. They were supposed to forcefully take off the hijabs of women who didn't get the memo. Um, now, taking off a woman's hijab is supposed to be a major, well, not just a religious offense, it's, it's you know, a major violation of your rights as well. So after the kashf hijab the veil became illegal in schools, in shops, and public spaces. So the women who weren't really ready to shed up their hijabs stayed in closed communities. That literally meant structural disadvantages to, for generations to come. Um, when his son took over, Muhammad Reza Shah, he still believed that the veil was a backward tradition, but he didn't feel the need to throw the weight of the law behind it. So it was legalized again. At least it was now legal, but the systematic favoritism persisted. Um, By the time the Islamic revolution toppled the Pahlavi regime, the veil became the law again. It was legalized for all women above the age of nine. And there were very strict dress codes. There are color codes, by the way. I don't know if you guys know that, but there are color codes. Any show of hair was punishable by 74 lashes. I don't know why 74, by the way. The regime was obsessed with how should the ideal Muslim Iranian woman look like. Once again, the police was mobilized to maintain conformity to the new rule of law. When Khatami took over, the restrictions on how women look were loosened because he had a more reformist political ideology here my story kind of abruptly is ended the message is that in the middle east there always seems to be a linear relationship between the political climate and the way the women look in fact so much so that it seems to be a very good litmus test of the political climate so this was a particular case for the politicization of women's choices or more, maybe more appropriately reverse that women's choices in the Middle East are inherently very, very political. So at this point, I'd like to open up the floor for discussions. I mean, this was a particular case, but can we kind of zoom out from the Middle East and zoom in somewhere else? The United States, China, any, any place in the world where this seems to be, um, Uh, an intersection between the political discourse and women's private choices. David, let's start with you.
2: Thank you, Noor. I mean, that introduction was fantastic. And um, so as for your question, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind was um, in Italy, we had sort of a movement in, I wanna say around the 60s and the 70s for with teachers in particular, because the majority of women in Italy, their first job was as teachers in primary schools, elementary schools, middle schools. So you had a massive movement of teachers going to school in skirts and mini skirts, particularly, not okay. like skirts that went right above the knee, which was this sort of massive move, especially in Southern Italy, which is extremely Catholic. And so you had teachers, which, has, which have a lot of sort of societal honor for them being a teachers. Considered as as an extremely important job, even if it's not paid very much, and so you had this movement. I even remember my grandmother talking about it because she was an elementary school teacher, and she went to school with a mini skirt and with red lipstick. And so you had this <laughs> massive wave of women sort of saying, "Yes, we're, we're teachers. We have this level of honor associated to us, but we still want to wear a mini skirt because that's sort of that's our choice. That's our prerogative. Um, we do it regardless of whether." you being the church in particular, and the state, which was largely in control of, I mean, the church, which was in control of the main party, main ruling party. And so I think it's similar in a way to what you're describing in in the Middle East, where you have this sort of strong politicization of this relatively small act, you know, woman just decided, teacher just deciding to wear a miniskirt to school. And I don't know, it's a very interesting parallel, I would say.
1: Hmm. Is there any, any um, has there been any point in time where let's say in the history of America or any country that you're familiar with where, where uh, the women's choices, their private choices was backed by the weight of the law? Because I, th- I think this is where it kind of gets really interesting. It does seem to be a litmus test, especially in, in the Middle Eastern context where, for example, the Islamist movement in Egypt, the moment they were, you know, delegalized you see a direct trend and acceleration in women basically unveiling. So it, it, it's so visible in the Middle East, but for it to have the weight of the law behind it is just, uh, you know, it's a whole different context, isn't it?
3: Um, yeah, so I didn't really uh, have an immediate How to say a connection with China. But now, when you think of when you talk about like how law is actually uh, influencing and also, yeah, just intervening in women's private choices, I thought about something that was like banned uh, already 100 years ago. So, 1912, it was banned in China. It's like women before were asked to, you know, um, have their feet being. I don't know how to describe mm. it exactly, but they should not have their feet grown as freely as they want. It's considered to have very small feet um, to correspond to like the social aesthetic. And um, yeah, it was, well, it's definitely not the same thing as Muslim practices, because this is not really related to religion. It's more just, I think, for objectification of women um, in the sense that yeah. what supposed to uh, you know feel the taste of men so men like small feet women <laughs> oh foot binding yeah thank you so foot binding um is something that was yeah very much uh spread around the chinese society especially like um Nora mentioned like social higher social classes people so- higher social classes women uh have the right to get vil. um well, I guess it's not really accurate, but also for China, I think the, it was also for the richer women to get uh, this foot binding. Or for, you know, maybe poor people, they just let their girl either use very. They can binding, have big feet, right? <laughs> or they have big feet, exactly. And then they just, Shh. yeah, being recognized as barbarian or uncultured girls. It's exactly wow. what you mentioned, like unveiled and veiled are different. Um, but yeah, with the idea of, I guess, modernization, it's I'm, I mean, the, the law is actually forbidding uh, women to get foot binding. So yeah, that's what I want to share.
1: Interesting. Uh,
4: yes, I, I, I think it was very interesting. Uh, uh, the topic that you bring us—it's uh, um, sometimes I think uh, uh, we in in Western countries we find very difficult to think about these topics because uh, uh, we only see a part of them. Like, uh, um, well, in in my opinion, uh, we um, we uh, associate very quickly that you have a theme with only a religious theme, you know. Uh, so I think it it has a lot of um, parts of it uh, uh, that um, you brought us, and I, I was thinking about um, I don't know if it if it happened in in, in the United States, but in Argentina, um, I think uh, for about thirty years, uh, women have to uh, had this consentment um, from their husband to get a uh, contraceptive surgery, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, uh, uh, this thing, are uh, related to women, uh, women health and to our bodies, and, 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 how we manage, uh, the, the choice to, to be mothers or, or get children or how many children we want to get. Um, it's, uh, I think um, it, it had to be a law uh, regulating these choices and regulating these things. And right now, you see a lot of doctors that ask women uh, the, the consentment from the husband. So wow. uh, ignoring the law. <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you see this in the hospitals that are near. Or areas, you know, mm, uh, right? That, is, that doesn't happen in, in rich
1: neighborhoods, so interesting. You know, I was also thinking in terms of um abortion laws, right? It's the same, even in the, obviously the, the discussion on abortion laws is different in the Middle East, but it does seem to be the same. I mean, there again there seems to be a very big problem when we throw the weight of the law behind women's choices it's you know it's you jump one step ahead from the politicization of women's choices to the legislation of women's choices and i feel like now that's a bigger problem than this one because Even though, even if I want to kind of zoom out and bring myself to this one again, which is the politicization of women's choices, I want to say that, hmm, how did we get here? And a part of me wants to say, isn't that the axiom of feminism itself, that the personal is political? So now the political is personal. So it seems like, didn't the politicians just reverse the same ideology and kind of use the feminist ideology against itself that's one of the reasons why i was always skeptical when it came to feminism because hmm, i think it did quite a few damages but what do you think david about that
2: well um I mean, I, I, I like I, the idea is very interesting. The idea that um, feminism, of course, the, the, the founding idea is that the personal is political. And I think that was based off of the idea that before that feminist idea, you had governments, mainly led by men, saying We're, the, the, gov- the role of the government is only to participate in the political life of people, but in the personal life, meaning inside the home, the government does not does not have any sort of input. That's just sort of the, the, the family and the government has no sort of role in the home. And of course, feminists push back against that, saying no, society and the government need to enter the home. So yeah, what you're saying is the state Many, and also, I wanted to ask both jan and and a question about your examples about the removal of the hijab in uh, pre-Islamic Revolution in Iran and the illegalization of foot binding. Both of those were done by like sort of revolutionarily secular governments, right? Like the Communist Party in China and the government before the Islamic Revolution. Those were both like leftist secular governments, mm-hmm. right?
1: Good observation, David. Uh, yeah. This is, you know, very good observation. And that opens up a very big question about how far does the left go, usually?
2: Yeah. So, so, as you said, these governments were secular and they wanted to try to directly go in conflict with the religious side of the state. And so they tackled what really is sort of one of the main points of religion, which is the treatment of women. And so they turned the political into, wait, is that what you said? Yeah, they turned the political into the personal?
1: Yeah, I think it goes both ways. Yeah,
2: yeah, which is also problematic in its own way. Yeah,
1: that's very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, what do you guys
2: think about that? That sort of reversal of sort of the main principle of feminism being the personal is political. You shouldn't distinguish them. Well,
4: I think there is a certain point where um, where, when the problems are uh, so diverse, um, uh, maybe shared for a lot of people, uh, then um, the personal thing is not so clear, you know? I think think, uh, personal is not the same as individual. So uh, maybe your personal issues, your personal uh, context uh, can be shared. With others, and I think that is uh, when um, some uh, topics or some issues become a problem for a group, and that is uh, when the um, government or when when the state has to be involved to solve them because, uh, well, um, sometimes there is not other solution to get the state involved. To, to set some rules, and, uh, but I think uh, rules and um, legal issues has always uh, has to be involved with the real problem of, of people. And that is when personal issues uh, come through that. I think, uh, well, government is like, a, like this um, unknown thing that uh, it's like a concept, you know. It's like not tangible. So um, I think uh, um, the 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 loss has to be in in tune with the personal problems of the people uh, in in this case of women. But uh, uh, I, I, I was amazed because um, when uh, about this the, the, all the all the, um, the political story that nor, I uh, told us I was amazed because um, when well when women um, took the jihad, the symbolism and and gave this uh, uh, this this the use of the jihad, they gave the use a, a symbolism uh, um, they took from them. Well, the government established another law and.
1: So it's it's like a,
4: a women thought and, and women uh, that women want, it's in one way and the woman it's in another way. It's like a very opposite things. Uh, that is what uh, surprised me. Yeah. Yeah,
2: and actually Sabrina, I think you made me realize something which we haven't mentioned is that, which goes perfectly to Nora's point. The fact is that before, the illegalization of foot binding and of the hijab, it was probably very religious governments who wanted to enforce sort of the division between the personal and the political. And then you have the rise of these leftist parties who want to do the opposite. But in both cases, these are governments and administrations sort of entirely led by men. And sort of what this seems to be going at is men, regardless of whether they're on the left or on the right are unable to fix the issues of women and it should probably be women to try and fix the gender inequality. So no matter what men do, even if they're on the left, which may, would make you assume that they want to work towards gender equality, they're unable to do so and it should probably be women to lead that lead that charge. What do you think, Nora?
1: Jen Howe, I think you wanted to say something, but before Jen Howe, you know david honestly you raised a couple of very interesting points at the beginning i wanted to tell you hmm, you see how far the left can go when it wants to go far because it seems like globally the narrative is oh look at the problems of the right they go too far because the problems of the right are easy to point out they're easy to put in a box racism uh, what else <laughs> any kind of ism right is always associated with the right but then the left has a lot of problems going on, they can go to the extremes very easily as well. And you um, pointed out, rightly so, that it was leftist governments that led, legislated basically laws that violate the freedom and the agency of women in both China and obviously you know, in the Middle East, that's always the case, right? But that that's, that's a serious hit against what the left stands for, which is emancipation of all people, right? Especially women. Because even the left uses women as a card, literally as a political card whenever they want to. Um, but before I could say that, you also said that, well, you reminded me of my own argument that look, basically after, you know, revolutionary Iran took over they did the same thing so people on the right did the same thing now obviously we've kind of known that to begin with right that people on the right especially in where I am at do go a little bit too far and you're also right to point out it was with men now the Shah it was definitely men and there is this idea that it was forced secularization exactly for the reason that you said that political Islam, not Islam, political Islam, which is saying that the church should lead the state, was always and is always um, a threat in the Middle East. So to oppose that, what you do is you make the people less religious, so they're less susceptible to being, you know, into political Islam. That's exactly what the Shah did. That's exactly what Ataturk did. Um, So, and this is what a lot of scholars call forced secularization. And that's why it came back a couple of generations later, because it was not an organically secular society, like let's say in 2011, it was not. Um, but let's see where this is going. But um, what what other point did I want to make? I, I forgot. I, I wanted to, um, yeah, you're right to say that even the men on the right, seem to kind of be men because there's systematically a lack of islamic female scholars in general regardless of political ideology so that also seems to be a very important trend that this is one of the main reasons why the women agenda in the middle east is so stagnating there are no women what um religious leaders there are no women religious scholars to kind of take forward um, issues that concern religion and women. So this is very contentious in the Middle East. Um, And Sabrina, you made a very important point, but I think I forgot. But let me see. Yeah, you said that maybe there's a difference between what's personal and what is individual. I think I disagree with you on that one for sure, because I think at that point, we're just going into semantics and I'm not sure anything means anything at any point. So at some point, politically speaking, the personal, the moment you say that the personal is political, this is a very dangerous zone. That's exactly why I've always been reserved from all the isms, the feminism, the Marxism, the communism, because they, they create these ideologies that go deeply into your personal choices. And I feel like "Mm, that's, it's an all-encompassing lens to see the world. And then you have this proclivity to define and to analyze anything with regards to that ideological approach. Everything is a class struggle. Everything is a race struggle. Everything is a the patriarchy, you know, struggle. So that's, I think, yeah, maybe I'd attribute this whole thing for... On the feminism side, to be honest, because it does seem to be quite reversed. Um, and with that, um, Jen Hao, please. Um, thank you. Well, actually, Nor, you kind of, uh, well, you kind of,
3: I- I'm really, really um, happy to hear something that is really similar to what I was going to say. Um, and yeah, so I just wanted to react to what David mentioned. After he got expired from Sabrina, um, and Nor, you already kind of, uh, yeah, discussed about it. Is the men in government try to solve problems of women? Um, I think that's exactly one of the reason. Um, how to say? Well, that that's also something that is interesting now. Is that we're talking in general like politicization of women, right? So. Um, because of this not really obvious role of women in the political role, so as we know, like a lot of government are fulfilled with men and there are very few women, so when there is a woman appearing, um, normally her obvious identity is not like where she, uh, how old is she or some other identity information, but the most appealing information is a woman something something, and um yeah, just to reply on that is like uh, being into politics is really something unfamiliar for women. And uh, the fact that these are the men helping to secular- secularize the whole country is actually mm. like, for example, for China, it actually works with the de- de- legalization because mm, I guess it's just the desire of having equal rights for both genders that help so even though men are not women they cannot really understand their situation but the effort is still you know recognizable that's the point i want to make
1: that's an interesting point jen how i mean so do you think that if there were enough women in you know a specific government there wouldn't be violations on women as a group? Well, um, well,
3: the whole society is patriarchal and I'm quite skeptical with how, like even biologically, I'm not sure how women can be stronger than men when it comes to physical competition. Uh, Like the, I'm, I'm not totally sure when the political power of women becomes stronger. Is it actually going to influence or not? Because I um, wrote something about the French presidential election that has taken, taken place like in April this year. And uh, it is like a record that we're now having five or six, I don't remember, yeah, five probably, candidates who are female, which is very unusual. And it has never happened. And one of the comment I read was that, yeah, now politics is not that important. We can let women do it. Uh, more important things oh, wow. like business can, uh, yeah, men go to business. So um. I, I, I guess it's just like when it's popularized by women, it's considered normally as something that's not that complicated.
1: Mm. But I think at this point, you see some of the problems that we face when we when we say this narrative. And again, maybe I do pl- blame the feminists for using what, to, for identifying women as a group itself. Now, the moment you do that, it just feels like, okay, my question seemed to be something along the lines of, okay, what if there was a Jew in Hitler's government, that was responsible for Nazi Germany? Do you think then the Holocaust wouldn't have occurred? Now, to me, the answer seems to be no, it would have still occurred no matter how many Jews you would have had because it doesn't seem that it was was just a a group identity thing. It seems to be, it seems that anyone in a position of power could have been tempted to use that power and to play the card of women Um, So for example, if, if revolutionary Iran did have enough Islamic scholars who were female, it would have still installed the 74 lashes like it did. It would have still informed the stupid strict rules in the way that it did. Because it seems that the moment you identify people with their group identity, so they're just women, they're not people, you're just an Italian, you're not just you know, a, a person, you're just a Chinese, you're, you're, you're identifying yourself with your group identity, then you become a political card. Um, I, yeah, This is what is going on the top of my head. I don't know if I have articulated that enough and maybe I'd need your help to kind of bring it out um, into fruition the proper way, but this is what's kind of in my mind right now.
2: Yeah, I have a I have a follow up question for that because I was wondering if you if for like if the Islamic scholars example if you had sort of the equal amount of male and women Islamic scholars and the women Islamic scholars decided that yes for a certain infraction if if women show their hair if we show their hair since they're women, um, then we should get seventy four lashes isn't that different than if all the Islamic scholars were men and said the same thing. Sort of if the Islamic scholarship is made by men and they decide that if women show their hair, then they deserve 74 Mm. lashes. In that case, you have what I would call sexism. If you instead have half and half and the women scholars (laughs) decide that women should have 74 lashes, then at that point, isn't that their choice to do that with with their body? I mean, at that point, it's not longer sexism. I don't even see necessarily the issue from a women's standpoint, if they decide to do that to themselves. Like, because the issue is not necessarily even the act. The issue is, is who is telling women to do that act? Is it, are they telling themselves or is it men telling them to do that? So that's my question. Like, would it be, wouldn't it be better or wouldn't it give autonomy to women if they had chosen to enforce the 74 laxious rule?
1: I find that very hard to answer because um, we're still not talking about a democratically elected, you know, 10 women, right? I think this is, we can't kind of find our way around it. So it would be something along the lines of, no, no, I take an issue with the legislation of, you know, what women wear. I mean, sorry, but didn't that, not to enter into, you know, a tangent over here, but that's exactly the kind of narrative that that what gave legitimacy or gave ideas or hints to, you know, ISIS, for example. And then Iran and Saudi Arabia called, you know, no, no, but we didn't say that. We didn't go that far. But no, you kind of did, you know? So my problem is this, the legislation of, what women can and can't do, especially by a a non-elected body of people at the end of the day. So even if they were were women, I would take it into, you know, um, I don't think it would have been right at all. But maybe it would have been, yeah, maybe I I see your point. Maybe if, for example, they weren't, in a position of legislating, and they were just saying, you know, in, in in their authority as religious scholars that, oh, we think that God said that you need to cover up or else you're gonna to go to hell. So they were kind of conveying to women what they thought God was saying, because we don't have that either, without them having the ability to, to legislate. We don't have women, female, you know, religious scholars. So in that capacity, if we had that, then yeah, maybe it would feel a little bit better and less kind of prescribed by men, because this is a problem that the Middle East has, that it always seems to be men telling women how to dress modestly or, you know, how to interact with other women. And so at some point you stop listening because it just seems like, look, I don't think you understand. (laughs) So yeah, I, I accept your point in that regard
0: all right thank you everyone i think that has been quite a stimulating discussion we've all had a lot to learn and a lot of key concepts that you brought up as well um noor i in particular really enjoyed the references you drew to the hijab and how it is often believed to be stifling away women's rights but then actually it's their choice and their will and it's pretty interesting because very recently in india we did have a huge row a media row and a political row over the hijab as well in the state of Karnataka. So I do recommend our listeners and all of you who had, uh, who have tuned into our podcast to check out that conundrum as well. And we as um, at VTT and at the Women's Month uh, Research Group will obviously be diving into that in the coming days as well. Um, so to wrap it up, thank you everyone for joining us. We've had a lovely discussion and see you next time. Bye-bye.